it's a joy to be joining you for your Voices series this summer. I have loved what God has been doing in and through your community, and I love and respect your pastors, Jarrett and Jeannie. They have been an incredible influence in my life and in the life of my family, and I honor them today. What a joy it is to know them. And I'm also grateful to be joining you, albeit remotely, from our home church here in the Grand Rapids, Michigan area from Mars Hill Bible Church. But my family does have roots in Chicago. My husband was born and raised on the South Side, and I lived there for almost 10 years, and that's where we started our family. So it's such a joy to be connected to you in heart that way. Just three years ago, in fact, we were living in one of the far northwest suburbs in the aftermath of the state of emergency declared in Charlottesville, Virginia, where, if you recall, white supremacist and white nationalist groups who rallied over plans to remove a Confederate statue were met by a group of counter-protesters on the University of Virginia's campus. The next day, more violence ensued in Charlottesville, leaving one person dead and 19 severely injured. In the days that followed, in our small suburb of Chicago, my husband and I started noticing Confederate flags pop up in yards and windows around our neighborhood. We were both pastors at our local church, but I was also a mom of two kids at the time. We had not yet brought home our youngest daughter. And so I was heavy, not just spiritually in heart, but I was also concerned for the safety of my family, wondering who could we trust and asking questions like, what do people really think of us? Are we safe? When will all of this end? Would it ever end? The chief emotions that I navigated in that season were twofold, anger and fear. Anger because of the reality that systemic injustice and racism continued to so blatantly overwhelm our nation. And fear because that injustice was hitting close to home. In our neighborhood, we were undoubtedly the minority, and so it felt like we were in a fishbowl of sorts. And that even though all of this tension was happening over in Charlottesville, we couldn't help but wonder if this would impact our neighborhood as well. So hold that thought. We'll come back to the rest of the story. Today in 2020, I find it interesting that I'm asking myself some of the same questions that I asked three years ago and have, quite frankly, been asking for a very long time. Maybe you're asking some big questions too, given all that this year has presented in the way of tension. So why in the world would I choose two years ago to include the account of our family's experience in the aftermath of Charlottesville in this book on kindness. What does kindness have to do with tension? Why care about kindness at all in a moment like the one three years ago in Charlottesville? Why care about kindness right now 
in 2020. I mean, isn't kindness only reserved for the professional nice people like Mr. Rogers and Mother Teresa? Why not only rage at injustices or expend ourselves canceling people on Twitter or arguing with those with whom we disagree with flying fingers or over our keyboards at home? Because all of those things, even though they have their place and might even be effective to some degree, are done out of our imperfect power. In a moment like this, I'd argue that if we are going to see lasting change and real reconciliation, if we are going to experience healing and true justice, if we are going to tell the truth and see the fullness of flourishing for all in our midst, we're going to need a perfect kind of power that transcends our own. See, kindness isn't mere niceness. It's not just holding the door for someone or letting some, someone in front of you in traffic on the Dan Ryan. This kindness is the Galatians 5 fruit of the spirit included in the lineup next to joy, love, peace, patience, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. This is Christos. In Greek, this means being useful toward others, good-natured and gentle. It's the kindness that Jesus ascribes to God in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 6 when he urged his disciples to love their enemies and do good, telling them that their reward would be great and they'd be sons and daughters of the Most High. Why? Because God is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. So why care about kindness? Because we need a perfect power sourced by the Spirit of God if we are going to pursue a more just and peaceful kind of existence here on earth as it is in heaven. I wrote Humankind as a memoir a collection of short parables from my own life with the desire to call us back to the character of God's kindness toward us and the truth that he created each and every human being in his image and likeness. I wrote it in the form of story because God pursues us through story and scripture is that great story unfolded for us to see his love on display in the person of Jesus Christ. But there are really three texts that have helped me deepen my commitment to kindness as a part of my life in following Jesus on an everyday basis. And this is what I'm hoping. I'm hoping that this deepening of kindness in our lives is especially relevant for our current cultural moment that we're in. And I'm hoping that you'll commit to kindness too. Each of these characteristics tells us something unique about what our relationship to kindness should look like as we seek to look like more of Jesus and his life here on earth. So the first characteristic is what kindness preserves. 
A couple of weeks ago, there was a huge storm in Grand Rapids and it swept through our city. And over two days, we lost power in our home for 14 hours. And I wasn't worried about us not having light or TV. I was actually grateful as a mom that my kids wouldn't be able to charge their devices. But what I was really concerned about was the fact that we had just gone to the grocery store and our fridge was fully stocked. I mean, nowadays you're spending $18 on a little basket of fruit, right? And I didn't want our food to spoil. The ability of our fridge to preserve our produce, our dairy products, was crucial to the freshness of our food. Well, in Ephesians 4, Paul tells us something really crucial about the role that kindness plays in preserving the life of our own hearts. He had just warned the Ephesians against living a life of ignorance and alienation from God. But he says something key about how others got to that place of being removed from life with Christ. He says this, He says, they're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. A hard or calloused heart, Paul says, is the source of a life that produces a darkened understanding. That is the complete antithesis to abundant life in Christ. Therefore, the preservation of our hearts matters. What is being formed in us in the ways that we look to the media, in the ways that we act with one another? Everything has an impact on our hearts. Chaos and tension and division have the ability to darken and harden our hearts if we're not careful. So if we skip down to verse 32 then, where Paul says to put away bitterness and wrath and anger and malice, he then says this, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Friends, kindness isn't just about being nice. It keeps our hearts tender able not just to receive the grace and mercy that's shown us through Christ himself, but it also enables us to give it away when showing kindness seems impossible. Said a different way, kindness keeps our hearts porous, able to both receive and give away the love of God to our broken world. So a question for you right here. What is your heart preserving this day? Is it keeping bitterness and anger and apathy fresh? Or is there room for kindness, forgiveness, and mercy, even in the face of grievous offenses? That's what kindness preserves. Secondly, is how kindness transforms. Before I had kids, I loved refurbishing furniture. I used to watch all the home makeover shows. My favorite was Fixer Upper. But what I found so interesting 
each one of these episodes is that before the new thing was revealed, you, sp you spend most of your time seeing what it looked like beforehand. And the work of the carpenter or the designer or the contractor was to show us how to transform that old room or that old house into something new and remarkable. As I said before, kindness's effectiveness isn't restricted to a singular moment or act of charity. It's not about doing something one time and leaving that encounter feeling gratified for what we've been able to do in our own power. No, kindness transforms. Check out what Paul says to the church at Rome. He says, since you judge others, why do you think you can avoid God's judgment when you do the same things? Don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that his kindness is intended to turn you from your sin? The Roman church was observing and judging those who knew God, but who were living lives of sin, greed, hate, envy, murder, deception, and the list goes on and on from the end of Romans chapter one. And Paul is saying, you may think you can condemn them, but take a look at your own life. And then he reminds them of God's action and posture toward them, that his kindness is purposeful, not offered in a void, just to produce meaningless positivity in the world. His kindness is meant to transform our very lives that we might see the truth of ourselves exposed in the light of who he is. And that when we see that truth, we might turn away from what grieves God's heart and toward life that is abundant and good and aligned with his heart. The message translation of this text says that God is kind, but he's not soft. In kindness, he takes us firmly by the hand and leads us into a radical life change. That's the power of kindness and what our kindness might offer to the world. Don't be deceived. Kindness is not weakness. It's not a band-aid over our culture's cancer, but the opportunity for real lives to be changed, transformed, healed, and restored. So a second question for you today, what are you hoping becomes transformed around you? And may I ask why? Deep down, is it so that one day you might prove your roommate or your in-laws that you are right all along? Are you defending the appearance of your own weakness? Or are you joining your heart to God's in longing for all things to be made new? So kindness preserves, it transforms, and finally, we have to look at who kindness dignifies. 
One of my absolute favorite stories from the Gospels is when Jesus encounters a Samaritan woman by a well in John 4. And here it's interesting because the word kindness isn't explicitly used in this text, but more importantly, I'd say, Jesus shows kindness to this woman. First, he draws near to her. The text says he has to go through Samaria. Now understand the Samaritans were despised by the Jews. They were half Jewish, half Gentile, and were seen as an inferior race as a result. No Jew wanted to be associated with or in proximity to a Samaritan. This feud between Jews and Samaritans was generations deep. And because of that, Jews who were on the road up north often took a route around Samaria so they wouldn't have to pass through. But I find it so interesting that Jesus chooses to go straight to it. And he encounters this woman. Women in the first century were seen as weak and teachers of the law didn't even want to look at them, let alone have conversations with them. But there Jesus is drawing near to her, conversing with her, dignifying her. Look at the first thing he says to her in John 4 verse 7. He says, give me a drink. Now this might seem like a throwaway ask, but we have to understand that Jews, because they didn't want to be associated with Samaritans, also found it unacceptable to share dishes and utensils with them. They felt it would be unclean. So just in telling this woman to give him a drink of water insinuates that Jesus wants to be associated with her. He wants to share her water vessel. In fact, it's more than that. He's putting her in a place of power to either grant or refuse his request. He dignifies her with these four little words. Now, some of you know the rest of the story. This woman admits something deeply personal and potentially shameful about her life, something that has made her separate from her community. And Jesus follows up by telling her the entire truth of the situation. He reveals himself to her as the Messiah. And she ends up running back to the community that has marginalized her, proclaiming the good news of being known and seen by Jesus. Now, what Jesus did was very risky. It was risky to his reputation, but he drew near. He has an honest conversation with her. He does not undermine the truth. He doesn't skate around what is true about her life, but in doing those two things, he's essentially preserved her heart. She was willing to remain tenderhearted in hearing that hard truth about her life from him. His kindness transforms her and draws her out of shame and back into community as she is fully known. It turns her into an evangelist, 
she goes into the community telling people about Jesus to come and see the one who has told her everything about her life and her dignity is restored. Question, final one. Whose dignity and worth hangs in the balance when it comes to your life right now? Maybe is it your own? Have there been a series of encounters or circumstances where you have found yourself to be feeling worthless, absent of dignity in the face of your own community because of what you have said or done? Or perhaps it's someone else because in your heart of hearts, for whatever reason, your words and your actions have not agreed with God about who that person or that community is and how he views them as his very good creation. Back to the story I started telling at the beginning of our time together. If you're wondering how it all ended in my neighborhood with the Confederate flags popping up after Charlottesville, I realized that my anger and my fear, they weren't just paralyzing me. They were keeping me from fully aligning the mission and the calling of my life with the heart of God that's walked out in person day after day. And so I took a risk. I reached out to our local law enforcement and invited them to our home. Here's a snapshot of the Facebook message that I sent them all those years ago. I was seeking out a conversation where truth could be told, and where hearts just might remain tender. And in the unknown moments between the time that invitation was extended and the time that two officers from our local police department showed up, the seconds felt like minutes. I was wondering, what am I doing? Will this even work? What is this going to change or accomplish. I had so many self-doubts in my own mind and in my own heart feeling like this was too small a thing in the pursuit of understanding and peace. But eventually, outside our porch, my husband and I had the most underwhelming conversation. It wasn't earth-shattering. It wasn't Hallmark movie worthy, it was normal, and it was a little awkward. But I'll tell you what didn't happen. Fear did not win that day. And in looking those two officers eye to eye, I was able to share my own concerns. I was able to be human before them. They were able to tell me about their concerns and their commitment to their professions. They saw me and I saw them. Dignity was restored. Here's what I know. We won't always necessarily feel the power of kindness. It might be easier to feel bitterness or anger or apathy because it's comfortable. It may be what we know. It may be how we protect ourselves or justify our own beliefs or choices. 
sometimes kindness feels like the harder thing. It feels like courage. Sometimes it feels like grueling work that goes unseen and perhaps goes nowhere. I write about times in the book when I've been humiliated, humbled, and rejected. But amidst all the questions we're asking in our day about our own lives and about the state of the world around us, all the confusion and the division that we're navigating, may we remind ourselves that kindness is not for the weak because our God is kind and our God is not a weak God. My prayer for you, Soul City, is that whatever you're navigating today, whether that's loneliness or financial hardship, the loss of a job, perhaps the loss of a loved one, if you're navigating divorce, or perhaps this is a new season of parenting for you and you love your kids, but all this time spent at home with them tests you and frustrates you at times, and you're praying for peace and you need a break. Perhaps you're an empty nester this year and you just saw your son or your daughter graduate in less than ideal circumstances, under-celebrated in the midst of pandemic and these crazy times that we're living in. I want to show you just a reminder of what we've talked about today. My prayer, no matter where you are, is that you would say yes to kindness. What it preserves in the way of your heart. Friends, may we not grow calloused in heart or hard-hearted, no matter what the circumstances might be. Because out of the heart, life happens. We are called to preserve our hearts to guard them, for within them lies the wellspring of life. What do you need to be reminded that needs to be preserved today? Perhaps you need to be reminded that kindness transforms. It doesn't just happen to us or flow from us. It changes us. It's empowered by by God's spirit to turn what was dead and to make it come alive, to what was broken to make it whole, to what was sick it's now healed. Kindness transforms and it also dignifies. Dignifies each and every person around us because that person, he or she, is made in the image and the likeness of God. So here's what I want you to do as you look at these three phrases. Where is God's Holy Spirit inviting you to lean in today, to go deeper and looking more like Jesus for the sake of the world? Is he reminding you that your heart should be tender-hearted, ready to receive? Is he reminding you that there's something from which he wants you to turn to enter more fully into life in the way of transformation. Perhaps he wants to restore dignity back to you or those around you today. I'm just going to say a prayer as you choose one. Just to yourself, wherever you are.
perhaps you'd not mind holding out your hands to receive this prayer over you in your life today. I pray, Soul City, that your hearts would remain tender, that you'd be reminded of the gifts of grace and mercy afforded to you because of God's loving kindness toward you. That out of that tender place, you'd be not just broken, but that you would become whole, empowered by God's spirit to give those gifts of grace and mercy to our world that so desperately needs those gifts. I pray that because of God's kindness, you'd be compelled to say yes to abundant life, a life that says it is well with my soul, even in the midst of the darkness of this world, that you'd be re-envisioned by the fact that God's kindness is a kind of kindness that transforms, that he is actively making everything new, including you, even if you can't perceive it, he is working for your good. I pray that whatever you question about your worth today, or even the worth of another, may you be reminded that God's kindness dignifies even the most ungrateful, even the one who has been othered or marginalized. His kindness, whether we like it or not, is available to all and that's part of the scandal of grace. May you say yes to the work of dignifying others. May you agree with God about who you and about who they are. Soul City, I pray that God blesses you and keeps you in the days ahead. May you walk confidently in the power of God's kindness toward you, and may others know you by your love. Grace and peace.